I didn't know when I offered to help Darren out this weekend that the theme was corruption. All I remember is that he told me that he wanted me to preach a part of the series and that I was well qualified for my part. <laughs> well, I am. I'm so glad to be here. You can, you can imagine what this weekend has meant for Joy, my wife Joy and me to be together with a family and, uh, and to participate in the wedding. I had the privilege of marrying Tyler's parents and of marrying his sister. And now Tyler, and there's a, another generation coming along. I, I'm going to stay alive uh, just so I can do the marrying. Uh, it, it is so much fun. I've, I, <clears throat> except that if I keep on like this weekend, I will weigh 400 pounds. So I'm, I'm not going to do that, I think. Anyway, it's been wonderful, and I'm, I'm delighted. I've done a lot of reminiscing, of course, about the family. But I'm remembering that I first preached for this church, I think in the 1970s somewhere, when Dallas Schaefer was the minister over in the little building. It's probably not that direction, is it? But wherever. You don't know either. <laughs> Good. Anyway, so it's been so much fun to, to watch this church just keep growing and growing and growing in every dimension. I do want to say something, though, about the prayer that took place 20 years ago that Tom was talking about, praying for a, was it called Connections, Pastor, here? And God answered the prayer, he said. Now, I was in Arizona at the time, and Darren was on our staff at the time, and I was praying in the opposite direction, that he wouldn't go. So I assume that that means that your prayers here are more effective than my prayer was there. <laughs> anyway, I'm here today because I forgive you. I, I am a Christian. I have to. It's not a choice. Well, we've been doing a lot of thinking about marriage this weekend, obviously, with Tyler's, with Tyler's wedding. His, uh, his grandmother and I have been married 55 years. And uh, <laughs> thank you. She was nine at the time, and I was 12. <laughs> And so I felt compelled in the ceremony to not only congratulate the, the young couple and to share with them a vision of the future, but in sharing a vision of the future, I had to warn them. In fact, it's in the vows, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Because in a long marriage, you have it all. And we would do an injustice to young people if we said that... Uh, all you have to do is stand before the preacher and state your vows to one another, and it will be bliss from here on out. No, it won't be bliss from here on out. Fifty-five years ago, two relatively nice people stood before a preacher, strongly attracted to each other. We couldn't see what lay ahead. What we knew was we were in love. But the way it works, here we stood, these two young people, we, we married in innocence, we married in anticipation, we were eager to, go, to get on with life. We came, Joy and I, we came from nowhere, we had nothing. We pooled our resources when we got married. She, hadn't, 
She had no money. I had $700 in debt. <laughs> but we had faith and hope and love. So we said our I do's and we took off for our honeymoon in southern Oregon. Some friends of ours had a cabin that they lent us, let us rent free. And so we used it for that week and it was, it was like our own little paradise. It was a private lake and we were in glory. Then we got in the car, drove back up to Portland, moved into our little home, and the power struggle began. We discovered, when reality hit, that we had some imperfections. Now they were unequally distributed between the two of us. But up to that point they'd been hidden from our eyes, our smitten eyes. We both had independent streaks. We both knew we were right. And I was. <laughs> now I'm discovering, I'm, I'm just describing for you the power struggle that enters into any relationship. Relationships which, by the way, can only be held together over the long haul with a lot of grace and forgiveness. Because we are imperfect. I suspect that the first persons who heard the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden identified with them, showing the same intense interest we do. These two beautiful God-made people, fulfilling God's desire for them, who then turned their back on what was best for them, best for God. Now, as the, as the story goes, God planted them in the garden where everything was perfect. Well, almost everything. It was a large plot of uncultivated land. That always interests me. I'm from dairy farming country. I'm, I'm from, uh, you might have heard of my hometown, Tillamook, Oregon. You might have heard of Tillamook cheese. There are some people in this congregation who think that the best cheese comes from Wisconsin. They are so deluded. <laughs> it comes from a little county in western Oregon, Tillamook County, land of cheese, trees, and ocean breeze. Mud up to your knees and weather that makes you sneeze and wheeze. Anyway, that's my hometown, and I think of it when I read about this garden. Now, the, in Tillamook, the land had to be cultivated. The hay harvested and baled and stored for the winter. The cows milked morning and evening. A lot of hard work where I come from, but not in Eden, where God provided everything and where Adam is put together from the, from the dirt of the land and he is, he's of the same substance as the dirt of the land. And the Garden of Eden does look like my home county. I'm convinced it looks like my home county uh, without Tillamook's hundred inches of rain annually. Still deliciously green watered by clear streams stocked with trout, every kind of berry and fruit and nut and nutritional vegetable, except maybe rutabagas and turnips, spinach. Anyway, lots of trees, beautiful trees, kind of like the Douglas fir trees, I suppose, that I, that I grew up with. Or you may think, rightly so, it's a lot like Colorado, but maybe with gentler mountains. I mentioned the trees. There was one tree in the Garden of Eden. 
It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As if to indicate that from the very beginning, God, having created us male and female, also gave us freedom of choice. We could eat or not eat. We're not robots, perfectly programmed to do whatever the programmer wants us to do. We're human, made of dust, yes. But of more than dust, we, we can think. Now, we don't very often, but we can. And this tree, this tree is not like any tree that you studied in biology class. A special one. The kind that can only be found in the best stories. So let's look at the story from the beginning. Reading from the scripture, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from every tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So here you have it. The new creature, creature man, Adam. And everything is good, almost good, but, but God isn't finished yet. He knows that man won't be satisfied for long. The garden is gorgeous. The animals are fascinating. But there's nobody else like him. And we all like to be with others like us. So the story says that God caused a, a deep sleep to come over Adam. And from his rib he formed a creature unlike any other creature on earth except the man. And this creature was called woman. And man took her to himself, because she was like him, but not too much like him. There were differences, delightful differences, and everything was beautiful, except there was this snake, see, and not just any snake, a, a talking snake. And the snake doesn't like it that God is getting his way with these creatures, Something or someone there always is who, in any good story, doesn't like the peace, that thinks obedience is naive. He wants the power for himself. So the snake speaks, and he speaks with a hiss. Eve could hear the sound. She didn't hear the meaning. We like to blame the woman, but that isn't fair because, you see, they're so much alike, Adam and Eve. Curious, a little rebellious, wanting to be free, to choose without prohibitions from God or without interference from anybody. They want to be who they want to be. They want to do what they want to do, and they want to do it in their way. Uh, they wouldn't have known the song that Sammy Davis Jr. later sang. It was popular a few decades ago. The words go like this. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, whether I find a place in this world or never belong, I gotta be me, I gotta be me. What else can I be but what I am? You may not know the song either, but you know the words. You've sung them. We had some dear friends visit us many years ago when our children were young. Their children were young. Their little girl, Brenda, was about three years of age. We were sitting in the living room talking, and Brenda was fascinated by everything in that room, everything in that room that she shouldn't be interested in, she was interested in. 
And she would head for something. We'd say, oh, no, 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 no. And she would head for something else. Oh, no, 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 no. And finally, in utter frustration, this three-year-old girl stood in the middle of our living room and she said, that's a no-no. That's a no-no. That's a no-no. Everything's a no-no. And it was for a three-year-old. So there is, in the Garden of Eden, this tree, special tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We could easily call it the tree of human pride or the tree of rebellion. As far as Adam and Eve were concerned, it was a no-no. Well, this is where the snake comes in. Find this in the first, third, third verse of the third chapter. If you're following the citations in the bulletin, you will discover that there's a mistake made. I would so much like to tell you that it was Triva's fault in the office. But Triva took what I told her to do and did it. And I didn't discover until yesterday that she did it right when I wish she had done it wrong because the truth is I told her the second chapter when I should have told her the third chapter. So ignore what you see in the bulletin and watch on the screen because I think it's going to be right. Would you tell me if it isn't? Yeah, that's it. So here they are in the garden. Now the serpent, I think this is right, Verse 3, yep, this is going to do it. The serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And for the first time, they saw each other as they had never seen each other before. They were different. And they hid. When you're in the wrong, you don't want anything to do with God. You don't even need God to tell you that you're in the wrong. One of the reasons for God's unpopularity or the church's unpopularity today is just at this point. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me what's right and what's wrong. Even though I know I'm wrong. The devil made me do it, you see. Ah, That snake, that pesky snake, he's a crafty one. He's a fabricator. He makes up things. He makes up lies. And so he questions Eve. So who told you that, Eve? Who says that you can't eat of this tree? Who says, and we would say of ourselves, who says that the thou shalt nots of this world apply to me? No. You will not surely die. You have immunity. 
There won't be any consequences. Eat the fruit that is forbidden. But the truth is, there are always consequences. I was preaching many years ago in Indianapolis when I extended the gospel invitation at the end of the sermon, and a man walked down the aisle by himself. We met down here, shook hands, and then he spoke with a voice loud enough that others could hear. He said, for 52 years I've been doing it my way. Now I'm going to do it God's way. Well, he had been doing it God's way, uh, his way for 52 years. And his way was too much alcohol, too many drugs, too many women, too many jobs lost. He was in real trouble. But he was a repentant man. He was a sincere man. And when he took my hand and confessed his faith in Christ and was baptized, he meant it. They had told him when he was young that he could party hardy. That there wouldn't be any consequences. What he didn't know and I didn't know when I shook his hand that morning was that he had two years left to live only. Oh, they said to him when he was young, oh, you shall not surely die. But the consequences caught up with him. He had two good years with us. What was interesting to me was that when he died, I did his funeral. The pallbearers were from our church. The attendees were from our church. All those years of doing it his way, and he was left in the end without those old friends. No more drinking buddies. No more parties. No more sleeping around. Because they had consequences. And one of the consequences was that when the party was over, he was left without a friend. So, they were not there. Now for that man, as for Adam and Eve, it seemed for a while that the snake was right. And that God was wrong. For he had been to- they had been told, and Lee had been told, my friend, you will not die. And for so many years it looked like it was right. But then, his eyes finally were opened. And their eyes were finally opened. And they discovered they were exposed. And God came calling. Where are you? He answered. That is, Adam answered. I heard you in the garden, God. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, yes. The woman, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree. You understand, God, it was her fault. And I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Are you hearing this? You understand, God, it's not my fault. The woman you gave me, it's her fault. The serpent in the garden, it's his fault. 
It's never my fault. I've concluded finally that the mark of maturity for us has nothing to do with whether we are 16 or 21 or 35 or 47. Maturity comes when we finally, honestly say, it's my fault. I chose wrong. And I will take the consequences. Have you heard yourself in this story yet? Have you ever simply thumbed your nose at God? Followed some snake? Believed that the law was for somebody else, not you? Well, the results are pretty horrendous. The snake is cursed. There's no room for pride, you understand, when you have been cursed to eat dust and slither along the ground to get anywhere. To be told that the descendants of the woman will strike your head, the best you can do is nip at the heel. Obvious who has the upper hand there. And the woman is cursed. The pain of childbirth will be hers. And the man, he'll toil by the sweat of his brow, and the toiling will not always be productive. He'll be among the thistles and the thorns in the fields, trying to coax some kind of living out of it. So the word of the Lord is, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So men do labor in the fields after all. And women do hurt, hurt something awful in childbirth. And snakes slither. Even some humans who believe in Satan more than they believe in God slither. And you can spot them pretty easily. They're the ones that are ruled by the same jealousies and anger and crafty manipulations that the snake in the story exhibits. They want power and they'll do what they have to do to get it. Beware of the snakes. Well, I wish the rest of the story were happier, but it isn't. There are, there are seasons of gladness, but there's no return to the Garden of Eden. Life from now on will be hard. And we move to the next generation and we read that Adam, in the biblical sense, knew Eve and she brought forth a man-child and he was named Cain. And then he knew her again and she brought forth a woman-child. I'm sorry, a second child. We've had a wedding this weekend. (laughs) Brought forth a second child, a man-child, and his name was Abel. And with their births, sibling rivalry enters the story. It's a variation on the same theme that the snake introduced. It's about favor and jealousy and taking power into one's own hands and eventually murder. So we turn to these two sons, Cain and Abel. One's a farmer, one's a shepherd. Both bring an offering to the Lord. One is accepted and one is not. I don't know what to make of this part of the story, really. I don't really understand why Cain's offering was not pleasing to the Lord, other than maybe he just picked whatever and brought it in, whereas Abel sacrificed a beautiful sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. Anyway, something in the heart that we can't see. So here's what we read. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock. 
The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor at all. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. But as you know, he didn't. And I should tell you, this is the first time the word sin is used in the Bible. A relationship has been abused. Cain is acting far less than the way God desired for him to act. Sin has entered. And then, and then God comes looking for the missing Abel who has been slain and can't find him. And he speaks to Cain. And Cain defensively says, what, am I my brother's keeper? No, Cain, you're not. But you are your brother's brother. And because of what you've done, that God says, now you are under a curse, just as Adam was. And driven from the ground, which has opened, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain is cast out. Now God's merciful. Offers to protect Cain in his wanderings. But the fact remains, he's banished. I wish the story ended there. I wish, I wish it would get better, but it doesn't. Because the consequences of sin go on generation after generation. Studies have been made about this, by the way. How you can trace from family to family, through generation to generation, the same problems, the same predilections to do wrong. Just as you can trace the predilections to do right in other families. So, we come to the story of Noah. And in verse 5 of chapter 6, we see how things had become. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted. Isn't this the saddest verse? The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground and here it comes again, for I regret that I have made them. I just must say parenthetically, I've heard those words from distraught parents many times. They feel they have failed utterly. And that their child, whatever child was, has gone so far astray as to not be redeemable. Terrible words. I regret that I have made them. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is really interesting to me because when you read about Noah, you discover he wasn't perfect either. Nobody in the story has been perfect. But he was close enough to desiring to do the will of God that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, you see this story again and again through the Bible. Sin takes over so completely that the righteousness of God is presented with a nearly desperate situation. Nearly desperate, but never totally 
Because here's Noah. Not perfect, but you know the story. You know the story of the flood and how they were saved by the ark. If you don't know that story from the Bible, you probably do from the movies. You might have seen that uh, Hollywood masterpiece with uh, Stephen Carroll in it. What was it? Evan Almighty. Dumb movie. <laughs> Dumb movie. But there was, a, there was a kernel of truth in that movie, and the truth was this. Noah was determined finally to do what God wanted him to do when he built the ark and he wasn't understood by his wife and he wasn't understood by his children at first and he wasn't understood by the neighbors. In fact, he was a, he was a, a source of ridicule, particularly in his workplace. And that's the kernel of truth. If you are determined that you will do the will of, the God, uh, the will of God, whatever, you will not be understood. People will wonder about you. They will maybe even make fun of you. Well, here's the story. So the, the rains came. Noah built the ark. The rains came. And it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, which I had never even seen in Tillamook. And, and then finally, the rain stopped and the waters began to recede. And they receded over 150 days. And Noah and his family had the fresh start that God promised. And there was the rainbow, God's promise of a new day. And in that rainbow, that part of the story, we see a forecast of what is to come in the gospel story. Much, much later, in an equally corrupt day, God sent Jesus in a rescue operation. And with Jesus, the story comes full circle. With Adam, sin conquered. With Jesus, sin is defeated. One who came in the early story hissed as a snake. But the one who came later to counter the hissings of the snake brought grace and truth and taught us the difference between good and evil, between hope and despair, between an existence that leads nowhere and a way of life that leads to joy and everlasting contentment with God. Now, if you look around, you see the snake is still pretty active still tempting people, still lying, still wanting to control, still deceiving people to their death. But you'll also see a cross, the cross on which Jesus died. You'll see a tomb from which he arose. And you'll see a future for those who give themselves to the one who was given to us to rescue us from the likes of the snake. I was sitting with Darren and Julie at the first service and Julie leaned over and said, do you know that it was 30 years ago you baptized me? And I remember so clearly when she came to our church. Young, single mother who'd been listening to some snakes but was astute enough to know there was no future there. So she came, responded to, God, to the gospel invitation, 
and I had the privilege of baptizing her. Thirty years later, I'm sitting beside her and her pastor husband. We've been celebrating the wedding of their son. We are surrounded by the people of God. She walked through the doors of a church one day and there were consequences. So who are you listening to? If you listen closely, can you hear a hiss? Or do you hear Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there will be consequences. And they will be good. Well, thanks for watching and listening online today. We really hope that as we continue this journey through the epic story, that you learn that the Bible is more than just a collection of tales and stories, but it's actually one continuous narrative about the person of Jesus Christ. And we hope that you can learn how you fit within that story and what your life means in the context of Scripture. If you've made a decision today based on today's message, whether it's you just need some prayer or uh, you want to get baptized or you just have a question or maybe you want to meet Jesus for the first time in your life, then we want to be able to pray for you and walk through that journey with you. So there's a couple of ways that you can do this. One, you can download our app. It's free from the iTunes and Google Play app store. Just search for Pikes Peak Christian Church. Then just click the prayer request button And fill that out and let us know how we can pray for you. And if you would like us to contact you, we'd be happy to do that as well. You can also go onto our website at pikespeakchristian.org and contact us there. Again, let us walk through this journey with you. While you're on the app or the website, if you'd like, you can check out upcoming events that are happening at the church and ways that you can connect. And if you'd like to support the ministry of Pikes Peak Christian Church, you can give online there as well. Well, we hope to see you back next week. I hope that you tune in for the next installment of the Epic Story series. Thank you so much, and God bless.